We are continuing this week with our study through the book of 1 Samuel, or 1 Shemuel. Uh, this week we're going to be in chapters 6 and 7. We're going to start off in verse, six, uh, verse 13 of chapter 6. And by a quick reminder, it's always been God's purpose to establish a kingship in Israel. We find that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. However, we remember from last time, it has to be done in his way and according to his plan. Now, in our study last time we were together, Israel continues taking steps toward moving from a theocracy into a monarchy. And last time, we saw that the Israelites went out to battle against the Philistines without first consulting Adonai. As a result, 30,000 Israelites were perished in the battle, and this included Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On top of all that, the Ark of God was captured and taken into Philistine territory. Now, the Ark remained in Philistine territory for seven months, and during that entire time, Adonai wreaked havoc upon the Philistines, giving them hemorrhoids and destroying their crops. The entire time it was there, the Philistines were in complete and utter disarray. Finally, when they had had enough, they sent the ark back to the Israelites with a guilt offering of gold and the shape of rats and their hemorrhoids. In the end, though, the Philistines had defeated the people of Israel, but they were unable to defeat the God of Israel. It's through this that we learn that it's not our responsibility to defend God's reputation. For Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11 tells us, and this is Adonai speaking, he says, For my own sake, for my sake I act. For how should I be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. It's not our job to defend God. It's not our job to stand up for him and make excuses for what he does and chooses to say. And this is where we pick up today in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13. The people of Beth Shemesh were in the valley reaping their wheat harvest and seeing the ark drawing near, for the Philistines had sent it back. They rejoiced. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped where there was a large stone. Now the Levites took down the ark of Adonai and the box that was with it and contained the golden objects and placed them on the large rock. Then they chopped the wood of the cart and offered up the cows as a burnt offering to Adonai. Seeing all this, the five lords of the Philistines returned to Ekron that same day. Remember, they said, hey, let's put it on a cart. Let's see if it's the ark that's causing us trouble. We're going to put it on a cart pulled by two female cows. And then if the cows just mysteriously go to the territory of Israel, that means God was in control. If they kind of meander around, then we know it was just happenstance. But they were satisfied with what they saw as the five lords of the Philistines looked on. So they returned home confident that it was the God of Israel who had struck them with their infirmities, and it wasn't just a poor instance. Now the gold tumors and the rats, which the Philistines sent back as a guilt offering to Adonai, represented the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five leaders. This also included all the fortified cities and the country villages. Now the large stone is a witness to this day of the great mourning which resulted from putting the Ark of Adonai on it in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So here we see verses 17 through 18 
are going to serve as a pro as a excuse me a reverse prologue for verses 19 and 20 and some into chapter 7. In other words, this means this is an afterthought or a hindsight that has been inserted into the narrative by the author. It gives us a clearer understanding into the magnitude of the verses which are about to read. It's as if the author is saying, I'm about to explain to you why we make such a big deal about these golden rats you see and that, that rock in the field over there. Why do we make such a big deal about those? Why do we tell you about those? Let me explain to you why. So the author continues on in verse 19. For Adonai had struck the man of Bashemesh for looking at the Ark of Adonai. He killed, he killed 50,070 of the people. And the people mourned because Adonai had struck them with such a great and terrible slaughter. So the ark's been returned to the Israelites. That's exciting. But a series of events begin to unfold that show us that the hearts of the people are not in the right place. The first few happenings seem to be tolerated by God as we read about them. For example, the animals come along, and while the Levites are involved in this process, they begin to offer up two burnt offerings of female cows. That's unacceptable. Because according to Le Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3, it says, If his sacrifice, or a person's sacrifice, is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to present a male without blemish. He's to offer it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that he may be accepted before Adonai. The second thing that we see that seems to be being tolerated by Adonai at this time is that they place the ark on a rock in an open field. It's supposed to be in the tabernacle. However, it seems that they've reached the extent of the mercy of God, which he's offering them when they begin to gaze upon the uncovered ark. So we know there's going to be a time where the tabernacle and the ark are not going to be together. And Adonai is allowing certain things to happen. But the thing that triggers Adonai is not that they've brought a female offering. It's not necessarily that they put the, rock, the ark on a rock in the middle of a field and not in the tabernacle. It's when they begin to look at the ark. It seems that getting the ark back didn't mean that their hearts were right with him. They still needed to repent. They needed to cover the ark. Remember, when the ark's not in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, it must be covered according to God's command. It can't sit out in an open field for people to look at it. Now, there are different translations, some of which say that they looked inside of the ark. I kind of like... At this point, I use the complete Jewish Bible for this verse because they bring up the point that they're looking at the ark. They're not supposed to see the ark. It's the holy place. It's supposed to be in the holy of holies, the most sanctified place within the tabernacle. It's not supposed to be out in the middle of a field for the world to gawk at. That's how the Philistines treated it. So their hearts hadn't turned back to him. And as a result, when they looked upon the ark, God kills 50,070 of the people. Now, this phrase here, it's difficult to decipher the numbering here. So in the original language, it has subsequently, so in the original language, it's difficult to decipher the numbering that's taking place here. And subsequently, this has led to multiple interpretations of the phrase. The most common being that 50,070 people of that very town had died. That's tragic. That's a lot of people. 
almost seems like too many people. Because remember last time something happened with the Israelites, 30,000 of them died in battle. So that means at this point, there's got to be at least 100,000 people in this one small city. Possible. It's possible. I'm not against it. It's a very probable answer. But as we look at what the rabbis have to say, and there's multiple different answers, so everyone seems to struggle with what the number is going on here. Another example is that it means that there's 70 elders, excuse me, 70 elders along with 50,000 common people died. I like that one. Leadership's supposed to know what's right. They're not supposed to be doing what's wrong. They're supposed to be setting the example. Another example is that 50,000 were killed who were each worthy of being one of the 70 elders of Israel. Okay, so 50,000 people who were super, super holy and spiritual were killed because they were worthy to be part of the 70 rulers of Israel? No, I take that one for what it's worth. A fourth example is that 50,000 were killed who were each worthy of being one of the 70 elders of Israel. But my favorite by far is this one. 50,000 Philistines, along with 70 inhabitants of Beth had died since the Ark was captured. And the reason I like this one is because we're never told how many of the Philistines are inflicted and died. But we know that there's a great enough death and an issue for them to send the Ark back. I like this because it shows grace and mercy on the part of Adonai as the people look on that 70 of them, a representative number of the leaders of Israel passed away because they failed to show respect to the Ark of God. So while each of these interpretations is interesting and holds merit in its own way, it seems that the overall point being made by the interpreters is that when we show a lack of proper respect for God, it brings punishment. So now when it comes to the things or the artifacts of God, we can sometimes find ourselves in one of two extremes. Overvaluing the physical things of God is extreme number one. In this case, we find ourselves putting our trust in his things rather than in him. And in previous chapters, we saw that the children of Israel had turned the ark of God into a good luck charm. They brought it to battle. And as a result, they had found themselves in their current predicament. But if we're not careful, we too can find ourselves in the very same situation. Maybe not with the Ark of God, but with items such as the kippah, talit, the lighting of Shabbat candles, or even our own personal Bibles we have in our hands. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we should avoid icon, the icons of our faith, but I'm simply setting the stage for the next extreme concerning the things of God. All these things are good when used in their proper order and kept in balance. The underlying valuing, excuse me, the second extreme concerning the things of God goes to the far opposite end. And it's the undervaluing of the things of God. This is when we find ourselves failing to acknowledge that the things God has called holy and special are set apart for his glory. Unfortunately, within our movement of Messianic Judaism, too often we see people swing into this extreme of the ideology. This is often expressed in the idea that everything is pagan and unredeemable. Once again, understand what I'm saying here. I know I'm treading on a line here, and I want you to understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we need to incorporate pagan practices into our everyday worship. 
but that we must acknowledge that there are two extremes within the understanding of the things of God. And that as we seek to maintain a balanced and centerline point of view, we must be careful to avoid wavering too far to the left or too far to the right. The middle is that sweet spot. That's that nice spot. It doesn't get us in trouble. It doesn't cause the world to look on us and go, wow, they're weirdos. Not going there anymore. And a great example of this is with our very own Bibles. So to undervalue our Bible, our physical Bible, where's the Bible? Oh, there it is. To undervalue this, this Bible, is to say something like, it's simply a combination of leather and paper with printing on it that different people have cobbled together over the centuries. It's just opinions. Now, in one sense, this idea is true. It is a physical book. It is just a book. It's made of leather and paper and ink. However, no physical book has intrinsic magical powers. This book in and of itself does nothing if it just sits here. It's just a book. It might as well be a paperweight. But the balance that we find is that the scripture that is contained within this book, that's what's worthy of us showing honor to. That's what makes this special. That's what makes this holy and set apart for God, not the paper it's written on, but the contents therein. And that's why we show respect to the word of God. That means if we accidentally drop it on the ground, you'll see a lot of us instantly pick it up and kiss it. Seems a little odd. Seems a little weird. But let's understand why we do it. We don't do it because it'll bring bad luck if we don't. We do it because we acknowledge that God's word is worthy of praise. And just as a husband shows affection towards his wife, we show affection to our creator in his very word. It's fallen on the ground. It should not be there. It deserves better. We pick it up. Give it a kiss. We do the same when the Torah goes around our synagogue. We don't worship the Torah scroll. It's just a scroll. It's just animal hide. But the words that are contained within it bring life. And we understand that. That's why we'll take the corner of our, our talit or our Bible or a siddurim. We'll touch it and we'll bring it to our lips because we're showing honor and respect to that word of God. That's the reason we have our children parade behind it because we want them to walk behind the word of God. And ultimately, we know who that word is. That word is our Messiah, Yeshua. So as we go forward, so the men of Beth Shemesh asked, so who is able now to stand before Adonai, this holy God? To whom can we send it to get away from us? Should it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of Adonai. Come down and bring it up to you. So they freaked out. Rightfully so. People have died. After this incident, the people of Beth Shemesh seem to understand that they're not worthy to keep the ark in their territory. Some inner reflection has taken place here. However, they don't simply seek to get rid of it like the leaders of the Philistines did, but instead they seek out people who are capable of accomplishing that which they themselves are ill-equipped to do. When my wife and I, Jessica, uh, first got married, she took care of all the finances. She is the financier in our house, still to this day for the most part. 
Um, I had no clue. She worked in a bank. She knew what she was doing. I was working retail and selling paper and paper products. She knew better than I did. But you know, as time went on, and especially over the last five years, I've taken a special interest in understanding how money works and how our finances need to be run. Now, she still is in control. She oversees what's going on. But I've taken the time to finally learn and to see what she saw. I was ill-equipped and allowed her to do and to make up for my shortcomings. You see, there's no shame in asking for help in the areas of our lives in which we're not equipped. It's okay. We can't be an end-all, be-all to everything. We fall short in areas, and sometimes we need help. And that's what the people here in Beshemesh do. They call out for help because they don't know what to do. So then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and brought the Ark of Adonai into the house of Aminadab on the hill. And they consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the Ark of Adonai. From the day that the Ark arrived in Kirjath-Jerim, a long time elapsed, 20 years. So the Ark has made a full-on circuit now. It started in Shiloh. It went into the territory of the Philistines. It ended up back in Beth Shemesh. And now it's in Kirjath-Jerim, where it's going to rest for 20 years, apart from the tabernacle. It's just the ark. It's just there. All this is going to help our understanding when we come and we start to learn about King David and why all of a sudden he has the ephod. There's a lot going on here. So the first 11 years of the ark resting in Kirjath-Jerim will consist of Samuel's judgeship over the nation going to be followed by two years of the rulership of King Saul, and finally seven years of the rulership of King David as he reigns from Hebron. And it's worth noting at this point that the ark and the tabernacle will not be reunited in the same place until the dedication of the first temple during the reign of Solomon. That's David's son. That's three kings in. That's 57 years after its return from the Philistines. So the whole house of Israel yearned for Adonai. Then Samuel spoke to the whole house of Israel, saying, If you are returning to Adonai with all your heart, then remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Ready your hearts to Adonai and serve him only. Then he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. You know, I love how the Bible not only gives us a call to action, but it also gives us the instructions on the process. God doesn't say, just go do it and figure it out, and then I'll zap you when you're wrong. He says, hey, I need you to do this, and this is how it happens. So here Samuel, being used by God, gives the people the four steps it takes for revival to overtake their land. First, the returning. Return to God. This means exalting him as the, exalting him to the rightful place in our lives as the creator. Secondly is remove. Remove the foreign gods. We must remove anything in our lives that rivals God and causes perversion within us. So as we begin to walk out these first two steps of revival, this naturally will leave a temporary void in our life. Like the things that we used to follow and the things that we used to do and believe, we throw those aside and now there's nothing there. There's a void, there's an emptiness. And we see our master Yeshua make reference to this emptiness in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 43 and 45. And this is what he says. 
Now, when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it travels through dry country, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says to itself, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house standing empty, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they come and live there, so that in the end, the person is worse off than he was in the beginning. A house is never meant to be empty. Clean, yes. Empty, no. It's supposed to be filled with furniture and decorations that benefit the owner. That's why it's so important for us to begin filling any freshly clean and repentant space with the truth of God. We come to repentance. We say, I was wrong. Awesome. That's the first step. Now fill it with what's right. Because if we don't fill it with what's right, it's going to come back. And this leads us to step number three in revival. Step number three is we need to ready our hearts for what God might do. We need to stir up the expectation that God's not through with us yet. He still has plenty to do. And if you haven't quite caught on to this, the understanding, the idea of a revival isn't a one-time thing. In our lives, we constantly need that. Because we constantly do what's wrong. We try to do what's right, but in the end, we're still imperfect beings and we still do what's wrong. So we need a revival. So then how do we do this? How can I be certain that God still cares enough about me that he is going to help me and be there with me? The answer is simple. We know this because the Bible is full of people who failed miserably, and yet were still used mightily by God. You see, when we stay continually entrenched in the word of God, a natural understanding of who we are and how much we mean to him becomes the furniture and decorations in our empty, cleaned-out house. So how do we fill that void? Simple. Sit down for a little bit. Pick up the word. Read a little bit. That puts decorations on the wall. It puts in new carpeting. It puts a fresh coat of paint on the walls. It helps us to re-identify who we are in our Messiah. And fourthly, the fourth step in revival is we need to reserve our efforts and energies for God to serve him as the master of all. Sometimes it's easier just to want Yeshua to take the wheel and to drive our lives. But the heart of our master says, nope, I'll be your co-pilot. Let me tell you how your life is supposed to be according to God's righteous standard. Let me instruct you. But you, Chris, you are responsible for steering your own vehicle. I know that song, Jesus Take the Wheel, sounds great. But it's not the heart of our Father. He says, I don't want your wheel. I got my own. But what I want you to do is I want you to let me sit next to you and tell you the directions. Let me be a good co-pilot for you and lead you but you have to get up you have to start doing something so the children of Israel removed the Baalim and the Ashtaroth and served Adonai alone then Samuel said gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to Adonai for you gathering at Mizpah Samuel drew water and poured it out before Adonai they fasted on that day and said we have sinned against Adonai then Samuel began serving them as judge over the children of Israel at Mizpah. So we find that revival is renewal. 
It's like a fresh pouring out of water. You know, when you pour water out of a jug, you can't take it back. It, it's going down. It doesn't reverse back up. And the people gathered together and said, we want to go towards God once again. We've gone astray. You know, revival shares a common factor with history in that while history doesn't repeat itself, it sure does rhyme. We do ourselves a disservice when we long for the old days and the old systems by which God has moved in his people in the past. The Yeshua movement of the 60s and the 70s. Oh, I wish we could go back to that. We do ourselves a disservice. That was then. This is now. You see, each generation is different and feels different needs. Therefore, if we want revival to happen in our land today, we must seek how God wants to move amongst his people today. Not how he moved amongst his people in the 60s and the 70s and in the late 1800s. Because the woke population of today in our country are the hippies of the past. The people change, but the formula for revival stays the same throughout history. It starts with us, though, in the church. Excuse me. Freudian slip. It starts with us here in the body of messianic believers. It starts with the Da'etz Chaim. So let's go out and let's start sharing the love of Messiah and see who he starts bringing through our front doors. Shabbat Shalom.